Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today, I'm joined by Chris Bearcat, who is a WNBF pro natural bodybuilder and professor at the School of Gains. He's Masters of Science, and we're having him back in the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, my man. Today, we're going to be talking about you're four days out, by the yeah. way. So oh, thank yeah. you for, for interviewing me on a, on a day where, you know, energy might not be super high. Check out the cheekbones. We're grateful, yeah. man. We're here. We're here. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about how to set up a training split. So factors to think about in designing your training week. And the main emphasis, as always, is going to be on hypertrophy. So this is going to involve quite a bit of discussion about frequency, the composition of different muscle groups, some of Chris's favorite splits, and talk about some of the nuances of programming, such as fatigue distribution. So we're just going to jump right into this here. I think whenever you talk about setting up a split, it's important to think about frequency and the effect that it has on hypertrophy. So yeah, could you just maybe open up in terms of kind of the research there is on frequency related to hypertrophy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of f- first and foremost, I want to say that when you're looking at a training split, you need to look at volume, intensity, and frequency as your basically your three pillars or your three dials that you can actually manipulate and move. But um, they need to be balanced appropriately. Um, so you are actually progressing within your training split, recovering well, and you're able to sus- kind of sustain the approach you're currently on. Um, otherwise, you can kind of be doing more harm than good. And the reason why you're not adapting at a specific rate um, can actually just be due to poor organization. So again, that volume, intensity, and frequencies is how you're organizing the amount of total work you're doing. Um, in regards to the research, I am pretty critical of it, to be honest with you. I think a lot of the results that we have observed in the literature is more so due to the study design Hmm. as well as the demographic of subjects we are investigating. So, um, it's super, super important to consider the differences between someone who's a novice, an intermediate, an upper level intermediate, an advanced person, and then a pro or you know an elite level person. Um, it's going to be drastically different. So even though a lot of the research or some of the research has been done in trained individuals, I think it's really important to realize a lot of that research has been done in males between the ages of 18 and 22, a lot of times, you know, college, college age males that, yeah, they could have been lifting for, you know, three plus years, but maybe they were training in a high school weight room and they trained in college for one year. Um, They're not super, super well experienced is Mm -hmm. basically what I'm trying to say. Um, So I think a lot of what we have observed in the literature is more so due to the actual study design itself and the demographics that we're investigating and not necessarily, uh, it can't be applied to every individual. So you have to really understand the different contexts that play. Um, sorry for that ramble, it was kind of just like a, a quick intro um, before going into it. But mm-hmm. when we do look at the literature, there is this thought that 
increasing your training frequency might be more beneficial for more advanced athletes. Um, but then there is also data kind of pointing in the direction that as long as weekly volume is equated, it actually doesn't matter too much. Um, and I don't necessarily think either of those are correct. So we kind of need to dig a little bit further and get a little bit more nuanced into why the research is pointing us in those directions and also kind of contradicting one another at the same time. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And I'm glad that you bring this critical eye because I think a lot of keyboard warriors kind of just jump to whatever an abstract says and they're like, aha, I knew it. Full body five times a week is the way to go for advanced people or everyday training or something like that, or once a week high intensity. And there's a lot of nuance to this. And there are different variables, as you mentioned, frequency interacts with volume and intensity very intimately. So we probably want to dig a little further into this. I think it would be cool to stop and discuss that at this point. Maybe we could talk about some of the pros and cons of the lower versus higher frequency approaches. Sure. So with the goal of hypertrophy, hypertrophy being your priority, um, I think I think the way that a lot of the evidence-based community goes about prescribing splits is actually slightly different than, than what I would do. Um, so I think if you're more of a novice, it makes a lot of sense to do full body three times per week, something like that. Um, because you do not need a lot of stimulus per session per muscle group to elicit the positive adaptation response that we're looking for. So if you're a beginner and you can get a really good response to grow your pecs or grow your lats or grow your quads by doing two to four working sets of one exercise, there's no reason why you should do, you know, three to four working sets of five different exercises in one training session. Mm -hmm. Because at that point it's it's just overkill. Um, You don't have, the ability to truly recover from that, or it's just going to take you a long period of time to recover from that. But more importantly, you do not need to try to turn that stimulus dial to such a a high degree. Mm -hmm. Um, So in those situations, I think it makes a lot of sense to probably prescribe, you know, full body three times per week, whatever it may be, and have a low amount of volume per session. Um, I think it's important to not just talk about weekly volume, per muscle group, but also volume per session per muscle group, depending on what, what the split looks like. Um, and then as you get more advanced, I think again, to maximize hypertrophy, it becomes more important that you're training each muscles actual function, right? Not just one of the functions. If the muscle has multiple functions and to make sure that you're training a muscle at different angles or from different planes. So um, that's where increasing your exercise selection or your variety is going to be a bit more important as you become more advanced. Um, so like a really quick example, you know, if, if we had a beginner um, and they're kind of just focused on compound lifts, cause that's going to give them the best bang for their buck. Perhaps they're doing a hip hinging movement for their hamstrings like an RDL or 45 degree hip extension, um, that is going to give them a good training stimulus and that will hypertrophy their hamstrings. 
especially to start. Um, but that 45 degree hip extension or any hip hinging movement is only training one function of the hamstrings. So as they become more advanced, it would make a lot more sense for them to also add in a knee flexion exercise. Um, that doesn't mean that that beginner needs to do a knee flexion exercise and a hip hinging movement in the same training session if they're doing full body, but maybe one day they're doing knee flexion and the next day they're doing hip extension, right? So then you have to get a little bit more creative. And then the more advanced you get, you start looking at, okay, I want to train muscles at different lengths. I want to overload exercises at different portions of the range. Mm -hmm. So then you have to consider, all right, what's the difference between a lying hamstring curl and a seated hamstring curl? What's the difference between a Romanian deadlift and a 45 degree hip extension, so on and so forth. And then you can get really smart and strategic with how you are planning out your entire split and each session within that split. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And as one becomes more advanced, you start digging into more, yeah, more nuanced application of exercise selection, and you start requiring a little bit more complexity in your programming. So one other thing I wanted to touch on was uh, there's this concept of, you know, advanced people or yeah, that, that this muscle protein synthesis curve, you know, has a limited time. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the, the data does show that. So if you take a novice trainee or an untrained person, put them through a resistance training bout, um, you can see muscle protein synthesis elevated for up to 72 hours. Um, where you don't typically see that same duration for a more advanced trainee, the training itself might only increase protein synthesis for eight to 16 hours, uh, maybe 24 hours at best, depending. Um, but again, I think we need to be cautious with the studies that we're looking at the subjects and their training status that those studies did, um, investigate as well as how much training volume were they doing in those studies? You know, um, I understand some of the, some of the research that does look at muscle protein synthesis, which requires a muscle biopsy. A lot of times they're doing like four sets of isokinetic knee extension. So they're mm -hmm. using like a biodex machine. Um, and they're doing, you know, quadricep training isolation movement, but maybe they're not doing, you know, three sets of squats, three sets of leg extensions, three sets of lunges and a, another movement, whatever it may be. So the validity between what they're doing in the laboratory and then what we're actually doing in the gym doesn't also align all the time. So it's just important to at least, um, take every piece of data with a grain of salt and be a little bit more understanding of the context that surrounds that data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. And then in terms of the argument for lower frequencies, what would you bring up there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to tie everything in together. Um, I think, again, if this is to maximize muscle growth and for bodybuilding, um, the goal of your training splits your volume, your intensity and frequency is supposed to be to maximize your progress over time. So you need to kind of organize your training split in a way that enables you to do so. Um, I think lower frequency training makes sense if 
the intensity that you're training at is high and the volume within each session that you're doing is also high. Hmm. So again, if we looked at volume intensity and frequency as three different dials, you could only turn two of those dials really high. Um, you can't turn all three dials up. So you can't do high volume, high intensity and high frequency. It doesn't make sense. You can do high volume, high intensity with lower frequencies. And then at the same time, if you are doing high frequency, you need to kind of pick, are you going to do low volume within each session, low-ish volume within each session, or are you going to train at lower intensities within each session mm -hmm. that'll enable you to, to train more frequently. So again, out of those three, you could only turn two of them to the max without pulling back on that third remaining dial. Um, so when you look at just a lot of pro bodybuilders, especially on the enhanced side, you see a lot of them train potentially once per week per muscle group. Um, I do feel like that's kind of changed over time. I think a lot of people are kind of training every muscle group once every four to five days now. A lot of people are utilizing like push, pull, like splits, whatever it may be um, with rest in between as needed. So rather than training once every seven days, like they used to in the past, I see a lot of people um, training kind of each muscle group once every five days. And again, I think that's fine if their intensity is high and their volume is high within those sessions. So it just depends on how they're organizing everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point in terms of thinking about, yeah, the other variables. And I also, yeah, I think that there's a lot of individual variability with how people respond to these different variables. And I think some people will do better with a, you know, lower frequency, higher, like volume per session approach or higher intensity per session. Yeah. In terms of actual muscle fiber composition, like what are your thoughts on, you know, fast versus slow twitch muscle groups and how that interacts? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, some things that we do know is that fast twitch muscle fibers have a much greater potential for growth. So their cross-sectional area is just larger in general. So there is some thought that some of the people that are more genetically blessed and kind of grow at faster rates, or they have a much larger muscle than their counterparts, um, perhaps they have a greater percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers. Um, however, we can hypertrophy both slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers. Um, and at the end of the day, as long as you are training close to failure, you can reach full motor unit recruitment and you're going to kind of maximize the muscle activation within that given exercise anyway. So you can train both muscle fibers to a very high degree and, and kind of provide them with the stimulus they need to grow um, regardless. But it is... Um, a thought and probably a pretty strong likelihood that those that are just a little bit more genetically blessed from a strength and size perspective um, are more fast twitch dominant, so to speak. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
there's actually some really cool thoughts by, are you familiar with Christian Thibodeau? No. No. Okay. So um, he used to write all the time. Oh, yeah, for, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah. Teen Nation, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of research in this realm, but the thing that's interesting is like, all right, you can take, let's just take uh, 70% of someone's 1RM, right, on a bench press or a squat. Um, you're going to have some people that can only do like 10 to 12 reps with 70% of their 1RM. And then you're going to have other people that can do like 30 reps plus with 70% of their 1RM. Um, so there are some thoughts there that, okay, the people that take 70% of their 1RM and they end up on like the lower end of the spectrum for their AMRAP, maybe they're more fast switch dominant. Yeah. Um, whereas somebody who has more muscular endurance and can just continue to grind out reps, perhaps they're more slow twitch dominant. And then that could potentially give you some insight into what rep range may be more favorable for you as an individual. Um, and I've seen this with some of my training partners and with myself. So like, for example, my buddy, Josh Bradshaw that works with me and coaches with my brand, um, he seems to be a bit more fast, switch dominant. So like we can be doing a set of incline dumbbell press. And once he gets closer and closer to failure, um, you kind of just, you, you, you can't really grind out those reps. It's like, he's giving max effort, but he, the, the amount of reps he can perform relative to his one RM is going to kind of be in that lower rep range. Whereas with me, I'm probably a bit more slow twitch dominant. I can kind of just eke out more reps at really, really slow speeds. Um, but my power isn't nearly as good. So my velocity on my first few reps, even when I'm fresh is much, much lower. So it's interesting, man, but I don't think we know enough yet to totally indiv individualize a program based on that. Um, but it's definitely some things to take into consideration, especially when it comes to certain exercises you should think about, okay, what rep range is going to be most efficient to train this particular exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could give some examples for that too, if you'd like. Yeah. Let's hear it. Yeah. So something like a shoulder lateral raise, right. Um, that's probably not a movement you're going to do in the four to six repetition range. Um, but maybe something like a reverse band, hack squat, or even a compound lift, like a machine shoulder press, um, maybe you would do a very, very heavy set in that four to six rep range. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas if you're doing an isolation movement or a movement that doesn't allow you to make really small incremental jumps in terms of load progression, you probably want to stray on that higher end of the rep range of things, right? So mm -hmm. if you're doing laterals, you're probably doing them for 10 to 15, if not, maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, so it makes sense to be really smart with your repetition goal for the exercises that you're selecting. Um, same thing, just to use legs again, as, as an example, since I just said delts, mm -hmm. you're probably going to do something like a reverse band hack squat at a much lower repetition range compared to something like your leg extension. And you need to think about, okay, how is this actually impacting localized fatigue on the muscle and how is it impacting systemic fatigue on your body as a whole? 
and you need to be smart with how you program that. So it would be really inefficient for me to do a set of 20 plus repetitions on a hack squat um, because it's going to create a ton of systemic fatigue because it is a compound lift. And I'm kind of doing a lot of junk volume until I'm getting to those effective reps. Just thinking about how you can maximize the ratio between effective reps to ineffective reps and how you can minimize the amount of junk volume that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I think the thinking about kind of the stimulus to fatigue ratio becomes more important as one becomes more advanced, where the fatigue side of things becomes a big issue. Where as a beginner, you're just not lifting very much. So like how much, yeah, you can't really do that much damage yourself, but yeah, as you become more advanced, it's a problem. That's a great point too, because it's, it's not truly relative to just your current relative strength. So like you can't compare 90% of a beginner's one RM to 90% of a true advanced lifters one RM. So like, let's just say someone's squatting with 135 pounds versus someone squatting for 315 pounds even if it's the same percent of their one RM that 315 pounds still going to be more fatiguing somehow systemically. Um, and it has obviously a lot higher levels of mechanical tension. Um, but there are other things that come along with that. So it's not always comparable, even if you're trying to make it relative based on percent of strength or intensity, whatever it may be. Another thing that comes up when you start talking about higher frequencies is soreness. So people will say that they don't like to train a muscle group, you know, too often in case it's sore. What are your feelings about soreness and training again? Yeah. Um, I would say it kind of depends on your split and depends how sore you truly are. Um, I don't think it's a great idea. I think you're doing a poor job of managing your volume within each session or your intensity within each session. If you're getting to your next training session for that muscle group and you're still not recovered, mm-hmm. um, you probably should taper back on either volume or intensity in the previous session. So that's not happening all the time. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to train if you're slightly sore. Um, but if you're super sore and this is like a, a very common occurrence, you need to reorganize your training split because that's only going to hinder your ability to perform in your current training session. And you're kind of digging yourself into a larger ditch than you can actually refill and recover from. Um, so there's nothing inherently wrong with getting sore, but we also know it's not needed to progress and to grow. Um, so you don't want to be chasing soreness or using that as your primary tool that you're doing everything right. Um, at the same time, if you're never, ever getting sore, I would say you should probably push intensity or volume up a little bit to kind of see what you actually can tolerate and reassess what your maximal recoverable volumes actually are, mm-hmm. what your minimal effective volumes actually are. Cause that's something that changes over time. Um, so I think it's important to adjust that over time, or at least kind of test it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I very much agree where soreness is. Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with training sore, but like to a, 
as long as it's not limiting your training session. But if you're always running to this issue, like it, it should be a non-issue where, you know, it's, it's more of a design problem where I think that like, I always say that try and shoot for somewhere between one day of soreness up to, you know, having it resolved the day before your next training session. And that's what I usually recommend people. I think that having a little bit of soreness can be a good indicator that you are kind of targeting things correctly, but you, yeah, ideally want to manage your volume and intensity so that you are recovered so you can have optimal performance. Yeah. Going to some, just, yeah, fun kind of experiential talk. What kind of splits have you used in the past and what's your current split? Yeah. Um, so this past contest prep, I'll kind of share that split really quick. Yeah. Um, it was basically, it was pretty cool. Um, it was kind of push pull legs off. Well, I actually rested whenever I need to. So it wasn't three days on one day off. It could have been one day on one day off, two days on one day off, three days on one day off. I rested when I needed it, but the split was push pull legs. And then it was, um, chest and arms, back and shoulders, legs. And then it was back to push pull legs and repeat. Um, so I kind of had those six different training days. Um, and then sometimes I would even, instead of doing chest and arms, back and shoulders and legs, I would actually pair chest and back together and shoulders and arms together. So I had a lot of different training uh, splits throughout the prep, so to speak. Um, but I was resting as I needed. So I wasn't too caught up on like, oh, it's Monday, I need to train legs or it's Wednesday. So it needs to be my rest day. Um, I really auto regulated that based on how good did I sleep? Where is my stress outside of the gym at? Um, how high is my, my motivation at the moment? Stuff like that. Um, so I think that's something you can do as you're a bit more advanced and you have a good sense of yourself. Um, but as a beginner, it's harder to make those calls and be in tune with some of that biofeedback stuff. Um, but yeah, and then splits that um, I kind of recommend a lot. It can be like my, a lot of the three-day splits that I would run for beginners or intermediates would be something like a full body and then off upper lower off. Um, other splits that I like would be if you're doing a four day per week, a lot of people do upper, lower, upper, lower. I generally don't do that. I usually do like a, um, a full body and then push pull legs, something like that, just so they can have more volume for each muscle group within each session. Um, and then what else have I done? Um, when I was way younger, I did a bro split like back in 2011, (laughs) you know, I did chest by itself back by itself shoulders and arms and and legs by itself. So did some bro splits when I was way younger. Um, what about you? Yeah, I've I've run a gamut of things. I think I, let's see, I started out doing full body just because I ran track and that was kind of the way you trained. And then I went through a push pull legs phase to a bit of a little modified Arnold split where it's like the chest back plus quads and then glutes, hams, and then, um, shoulders and arms. Mm. I really like that one. And then more upper lower for a long time. And most recently in contest prep, I've been back to full body four days mm. a week and largely for fatigue distribution where like, I just 
don't want to do, you know, 10 sets of quads or like, right. Like a, a tough leg day at my sure. level of energy. So I've yeah. been finding that really helpful. Mm. What has been your like reasoning for rotating the splits around, you know, as you said, yeah. switching between muscle groups? Yeah. So it was organized the way I, the way I said it kind of sound like it was disorganized, but I basically had like a week a and a week B um, 50% of my training sessions were push pull legs. And then 25% of my sessions were the, the chest and arms, hmm. the back and delts and the legs. And then the other 25% was the chest and back paired, the shoulders and arms paired mm -hmm. and the legs again. So, um, the reason I did that is for a few, re I mean, a few things, enjoyment, probably first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Um, secondly, on those shoulder and arm days or those chest and back days, I made it more metabolic in nature. So it was training at different repetition ranges. Um, also doing a lot of paired supersets. Um, so part of it is based on the stimulus I actually wanted out of the training session. And then another part of it is just, I wanted to freaking enjoy the training and mix it up frequently enough while still having those three sessions per week that were staples. And I was still really focused on, you know, strength progression, mm -hmm. beating the logbook, tracking all my numbers. Um, but it gave me that nice balance between being obsessed with the logbook and also going into the gym and just feeling damn good. And um, I don't want to say like chasing a pump, but on those more metabolic days with a lot of the paired supersets, the pumps would be absolutely disgusting. And that's, <laughs> that's nice when you're contest prepping and you're lean and you kind of can enjoy that a bit. So, yeah, that's, I find that really interesting. You know, like the way I like to see it is, you know, you have volume intensity and frequency as kind of this triangle at the base of a pyramid and they build up to this stimulus at the top of it. And as you become more advanced, you kind of are able to triangulate between these different variables on the fly, like in a very auto-regulated fashion where it's just like, yeah, I delivered this amount of stimulus and I'll be ready to train again, you know, at this point. And suddenly these concepts of things like splits and frequency become very fluid and mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need the structure, even though that structure can be very beneficial for beginners. Like as a beginner, I had no idea, like I needed someone to give me something to follow. Sure. One interesting thing I see in that approach, which I'm, you know, we'll have to think about further is, you know, the ability for you to rotate priorities between different, you know, styles of training, where, as you said, certain days may be more focused on more tension or like heavier weights and other days, maybe more metabolically focused. And you also give a little bit of prioritization to different muscle groups where, for example, if you give a day dedicated to shoulders and arms, you can really train your arms when they're fresh. Yes. Whereas if you had an upper body day, like after, after I do 10 sets of back, my bicep uh, quality of training is simply lower and 100%. you just don't have as much of a priority. So, yeah. Yeah. So like on a push day, right? Um, right now I usually do one to two tricep exercises towards the tail end of that push day. Once the chest and shoulder work was done. Um, and again, your triceps are slightly pre-fatigued from the compound lifts and the elbow extension of those compound lifts. Um, but also at the tail end of the session, you're mentally fatigued to a certain extent and you're, you know, you can give it your best effort, but it's different than training that fresh off the bat. 
um, more importantly, it gave me an ability to train each muscle group throughout its entire range of motion, not the exercises range of motion and train it at different lengths with exercises that had different strength profiles. So like on that shoulder and arm day, I would literally do three tricep exercises and three bicep exercises. One that had the biceps and triceps in a shortened position, one in the mid range, one in the lengthened position. And you're not just going to, you know, I'm not going to tack that on at the end of a push workout. And now my, now my training session is over two hours long or whatever. So mm-hmm. it comes down to, you know, time efficiency, uh, enjoyment. Um, and then obviously providing yourself with the actual stimulus that's beneficial, um, that you might not have implemented in your other training sessions. So yeah, it was, it's fun, man. Um, and I'm kind of still doing that, but training has been slightly lower on the priority list. So I'm still auto-regulating a lot of things and I haven't solidified my current off-season routine. So still kind of experimenting with a couple of different ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to a couple of nuances. When people want to prioritize certain muscle groups, do you have any tips for organizing those muscle groups into the split? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, making sure that you're performing exercises that you have a great mind muscle connection with, and that provides you with a good stimulus to fatigue ratio. Um, at one point in my training career, when I was much younger, I was really trying to bring up my quads. Um, and I spent a lot of time barbell back squatting, but it was not the best (laughs) movement for me to actually bring up my quads. So even though I was prioritizing that, by squatting more frequently, squatting at high intensities, um, it just wasn't super efficient, right? I would sprain my SI joint quite frequently. Um, my glutes would be a bit more sore than my quads, even if I was high barring. Um, and a lot of times I would feel like I, I reached failure, um, on that particular lift, even if there was more, um, there was more in the tank for my quads. Mm-hmm. right? You're kind of failing for other reasons because it's such a high skill level movement, um, maybe core strength, um, just overall systemic fatigue, whatever it may be. So I wasn't selecting the best exercise to do that. So first and foremost, make sure that your exercise selection is really, really good. Um, and it's providing you with a great stimulus. And then you want to consider, okay, um, how much volume does this muscle group actually need to grow and progress? And you want to make sure that you're not doing too much. So the quality of your work is always going to be a bit more important than just the total quantity of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. If you're doing really poor work or it's not super efficient, doing more of it isn't going to provide you with a better stimulus, right? So like going back to that back squat, if I just squatted more and more, um, maybe I would have grown a little bit more but it wasn't an efficient route to maximize that hypertrophy response. So yeah, making sure quality is there. Um, and then making sure that you're training a muscle throughout its entire range of motion, not the movements range of motion. So doing exercises that emphasize the length and position exercises that emphasize the mid range and exercises that emphasize the shortened position. So I think a lot of people misunderstand exercise range of motion and a muscles range of motion that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah no that's a that's 
definitely something to think about where yeah as you, you hear people talk about you know training full range of motion but yeah. with which exercises right and that's where then the nuances of you know understanding biomechanics really comes into play where yeah you can say yeah i'm gonna do a lying bicep curl and then more of a preacher curl or mixing things up in that way yep in terms of fatigue distribution what are your approaches to spreading out, you know, fatigue across the week? Yeah. Um, so again, looking at volume, intensity, and frequency, that's how you manage your fatigue right off the bat. Um, let me see. I mean, there's so many, so many ways to go about answering this question. Yeah. I guess, for example, like some people might argue like, oh, if you have a big leg day and then an arm day, your leg day is going to be far more fatiguing and it's going to be an asymmetric, you know, recovery burden. Um, to a certain extent. Yeah, for sure. But that's fine because it might enable you to be well recovered for your next day. So let's say you do smash legs and then the next day you might not be well prepared to train something like pull, right? Like maybe you don't want to do a lot of back compound movements mm -hmm. and deadlifts that very next day. Um, because your hamstrings and glutes are sore, you did some sort of axial loading. So your spinal erectors are kind of sore anyway, it wouldn't make sense to do back then, but instead of fully resting and taking that day off, cause you are so systemically fatigued. Um, yeah, you maybe throw in an, an arm day, or you can do something like push that isn't as demanding. Um, so there's a lot of ways to organize your split to make sure that you're managing fatigue. Well, but one thing I will say is if you're accumulating a lot of fatigue over the course of the mesocycle, there's nothing wrong with just taking consecutive days off other than actively deloading. So a lot of people, mm -hmm. especially in the hypertrophy world right now, we're trying to periodize ourselves as if we're strength athletes, mm. like peaking for meets, um, which is not who we are, what we're actually trying to do. So I don't think a lot of hypertrophy physique based athletes need to necessarily actively deload for an entire week. Um, I think there's plenty of benefits of maybe taking three consecutive days off and then maybe, maybe doing one to three training sessions at a lower RPE and then getting right back to what you were previously doing. So this whole arbitrary deload week, is very arbitrary in nature, mm. right? It makes sense for a strength athlete. Um, and it also kind of makes, it depends on why you're deloading. Um, are you just literally extremely systemically fatigued? You're getting poor sleep. You're feeling under-recovered. Or are you having like aches and pains in the joints and you know that you actually need more time to allow that specific tissue or that specific issue to actually recover? So why you're deloading matters. Um, and again, to arbitrarily deload every fourth week or something like that is very arbitrary as well. Um, you know, maybe if you're intentionally overreaching on week three and you know that, then yeah, it can make total sense to deload on week four, but each individual is going to actually require a deload at different rates, depending on so many factors, um, and unless you're literally perfect with your nutrition and your sleep, um, what you're doing in the gym isn't the only thing that's influencing why you need to deload. 
So just if life stress becomes really high, that can cause a lot more uh, stress and overall fatigue and kind of force you to deload more so than what you were doing in the gym. Um, so you got to take all that into consideration when it comes to managing fatigue. Yeah, I think that definitely comes more into play, especially as one becomes more advanced and your body, you're, you're more riding on the edge of your recovery ability where like I had this issue in med school where like back then I was, you know, really prior trying to prioritize the logbook and it was just mm. like zeroing in on the numbers and, you know, I'd come off of a 24 hour work shift and like trying to hit the same workout where it's just like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm slated for five sets of squats today. I'm going to hit it and yeah. absolutely crash and burned. And yep. yeah, like now, you know, you, you realize that you're going to benefit more overall, if you understand your body's current recovery status and maximize your productivity within that, yes. rather than saying, I'm going to, I'm going to hit my 10 sets of squats or die. Yes. So I was there too, man. And, and that was the biggest change for me in 2021, to be honest with you. Mm. So I tell all my clients now, I would rather you train less frequently, but have, you know, eight to 10 out of 10 sessions. If you're, if you're rating your session from one to 10, I'd rather you have really good sessions less frequently than poor to moderate sessions more frequently. Mm. So when I was younger, you know, I would do the same thing that you kind of just mentioned. Maybe I worked for 16 plus hours and I was like, well, darn it. I train Mondays and Tuesdays and I rest on Wednesdays and Sundays. So I need to go to the gym, even though it's 1030 at night and I'm absolutely exhausted. Yeah. And I would go into the gym and I wouldn't even moderate and, and decrease my volume intensity. I would do exactly what was on the training sheet for the day. And it'd be absolutely terrible. Um, whereas this past year is where I really was like, I would rather go into the gym fresh and give my, especially when you're in the deficit, you want to give yourself the best opportunity to maintain performance or progress. Um, with my goal being like maximizing muscle retention while I was in that deficit. Um, I didn't want to go in there more frequently and, and just say like, yeah, I'm, I'm always going to train hard. Even when I felt like crap, I was like, I want to go in there when I feel good and have the best session possible. So mm -hmm. That's why my training frequency was lower than ever last year, because I just prioritized recovery mm -hmm. to ensure that my performance was maintained or progressed to the best of my ability. Um, so yeah, man, just, I would rest more frequently. I would say, Hey, I would rather have a great session tomorrow rather than having a shitty or moderate session today. And then another thing to consider is if you are extremely fatigued today, but you still push yourself to train and you still have a poor moderate session, your ability to have a good training session tomorrow is now hindered as well. Cause you're yeah. kind of digging that bigger ditch once again. So all of that needs to go into consideration. And then that's not to say that there aren't times where you do just kind of need to, to grind it out. Um, because some of my best training sessions ever were when maybe I wasn't mentally ready to train but I pushed through and it was still an amazing training session somehow, some way. So again, that comes down to kind of knowing yourself. Um, I just don't want to make it sound like I'm telling people that, Oh, there's, there's never a time to 
kind of talk to that voice in your head and say, well, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to get it done, even if you don't feel like it. So you need to understand why you're making that decision. Are you truly physically and mentally fatigued and under recovered, or are you just not motivated at the time? And there's a big difference there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like separating the physiological from just like, yeah, like, how are you feeling where, you know, maybe I worked a long day, but I was just sitting at a computer. Yeah. Like my body is ready to train, like, let's be real. But on the other hand, like sometimes you see, and this is something where it's kind of like go hard or go home sort of pervasive attitude and bodybuilding where you see these Instagram influencers who are just like, yeah, I just landed, you know, my, for my flight and it's like 3am, but we're still going to hit a workout. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, bro, you can chill out. But yeah. And like, I think, and I think contest prep is kind of also maybe, you know, a bit more cognizant about, or like definitely prioritizing recovery and what you mentioned yeah. about, you know, how thinking about how a certain session can affect later sessions down the line becomes an issue where, for example, like a couple of weeks ago, I was on call and, you know, I, I worked from like eight till like 10 PM. Um, and then I got off and I was like, I still had a half hour cardio session that I would had was hoping to do, but I got off late and it was just like, either I sleep or I try and do more cardio. And I was like, I would rather sleep because I know that the recovery, if I don't recover, it's going to affect my tomorrow's training session. And if I affect, if I start having my training fall off, then Mm -hmm. I will start, you know, I'll have more difficulty maintaining muscle. And it kind of has this domino effect, especially when you're in a deficit and especially when you're trying to go for something more advanced, like a contest prep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I would always prioritize sleep over something like cardio. Um, And I, I tell some of my clients that right now. So I still quote unquote, prescribe them to do fasted cardio on their non-training day, whatever it may be. Um, But I also notate like, Hey, if doing your 45 minutes of cardio in the morning means you sleep five hours instead of six hours, Mm -hmm. um, I'd rather you sleep six hours and you do that 45 minutes later on in the day. Right. So um, yeah, you kind of need to take all these things into consideration. Um, One thing that served me super well during contest prep, believe it or not, was taking like eight to 15 minute power naps um, Mm -hmm. in the parking lot or Mm -hmm. the parking lot of the gym before going into train or like at my house right before going to the gym. Um, Because there was a lot of times where I was like, like you're just fatigued when you're dieting for that long. Um, But you also know, like you are well recovered. You're just fatigued from the diet. Um, But doing those like eight to 15 minute power naps were really, really good um, opportunities for me to recharge. And I think that really served me. um, I don't want to say better than I expected, but it was just a new thing that I implemented that I feel really served me well. So I know, again, you're currently contest prepping. um, And maybe that's something you want to experiment with, uh, just kind of shutting your eyes for a little bit or doing like a, like a breathing technique. Um, before before trying to nap or whatever but just closing your eyes and like decreasing the amount of stimulus that you're getting trying to chill out and then get into the gym and you'll just feel a little bit more fresh yeah no that that's a great trick yeah it's something i've used recently and more so like in when in in med school when i would like would come off of working all night and i still had to train and i would just like i you you try and sleep during the day but you never sleep very well and then you get up yeah 
you have just like go to the gym and like literally lie on the couch outside the gym. <laughs> yeah. Nap for 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that's been a great chat about frequency and splits and programming. Where are you at right now in your training? You alluded just a moment, but we could talk more. Yeah. So I'm trying to get back into a really good groove. Um, since contest prep, things haven't been like training hasn't been the priority. Um, I feel like I just maintained all my muscle and just regained, um, a little bit of body fat. I'm, I'm only 10 pounds above stage weight sort mm -hmm. of. So I'm not like, it's not like I put on, you know, 25 or 30 pounds pretty quickly. I'm not back to like my peak off season. Um, I kind of just got back to intuitive eating post-show and there was a long period of time where I was only like five to six pounds above stage weight and was kind of just hanging out there. Um, not intentionally. Hmm. Um, but that's kind of just where my body like landed. Um, and my that's training lean. frequency was, was lower. Yeah. I, I was lean. Um, I dexed at like seven and a half percent, like 10 weeks after my show or something. I was like, all right, this is, this is kind of, and again, it wasn't intentional, but I was like, I need to get back to just eating more again, because it was intuitive. So I was going based on, on hunger cues and appetite. And that's kind of just where I landed, but long story short, um, I'm trying to get back into a better groove of training, um, kind of re-solidify what movements I'm going to be really focused on for the next 12 to 16 weeks, try to progress on. Um, and right now I don't know when I'm going to compete next. I think at the very earliest, it would be 2024 or 2025, but I do kind of want to pick a date and a season just so I know mm. when it's going to be. Um, that gives me a lot. It just gives me a much better sense of timeline. Whereas if there is no official date and it's just a big question mark, um, it doesn't serve me well knowing that, okay, this is a very long extended off season. There's a huge lack of urgency and it doesn't serve my, my training well. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of, I don't want to say getting back into the swing of things, but making it a larger priority than it has been. Um, I've still been training three to three to four times a week right now, but you know, it's just not the same as what it was when you're in a contest prep. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's cool hearing that. Yeah. That you settled at a fairly low, you know, body fat range for a little while and, as yeah. long as things are functioning well, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I felt great, man. I, I think I don't want to get on a, on a long side tangent, but super quick. A lot of people are like, Oh, there's no way you can feel great at like 8% body fat. And it's like, that's not necessarily true. Um, it's super individualized for sure. Mm -hmm. But if you look at like basketball athletes or soccer athletes or whatever it may be, there are plenty of athletes that do maintain 8% year round and they have very healthy testosterone levels and so on and so forth. Hormonally, they're healthy. Um, so I think it depends on the person. It depends on the lifestyle. Um, not going to say that was a productive uh, place for me to build muscle and maximize my growth. But again, I kind of just landed there. Um, so that's where I hung out for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure right now I'm probably closer to that 10 to 12% range, but um, yeah. I don't, yeah, no, go, that's, yeah. I don't like going above 14, you know, I, yeah, I feel... that's kind of a, that's kind of like a trigger point for me, actually. Yeah. Like it, I generally yeah. recommend people try and ride at the lower end of their comfortable body fat settling range where like, 
it's where you're performing well, you're feeling good, you're, you're healthy. And yeah. I think often, yeah, often it's lower than what people expect. I think there's almost been a pushback in the community where for a while, bodybuilders were talking about this P ratio stuff and saying like, oh, you got to be 10%. Otherwise you're not hypertrophic. Mm-hmm. And, and then you had this pushback where guys are like, well, actually, I think you'd be better off riding more like 20% where your lifts yeah. are better leverages and you're feeling healthy. But I don't know, like, I think that there's a wide range. A lot of athletes do run, especially coming from a track background, seeing these guys walking around like with fucking shredded, like lower backs and like yep. looking really lean, but, but they were healthy and super healthy. You know, and you look back at history, like, I mean, humans were meant to be very athletic and, and functional in that way. And like, I think from a health perspective as well, coming from the MD side, like, I think that there is going to be a benefit if people ride on the lower end of things. Yeah. Even though, you know, by quote BMI or like what's okay that you might have a very wide range. Yeah. I think too many people in the evidence-based fitness space right now just correlate body fat percent and level of leanness to hormonal health when I think there's a stronger correlation to being hypercaloric or hypocaloric and hormonal health. Mm. So if you've been chronically hypocaloric, you probably are leaner, right? Like AKA contest prep, and then you're hormonally dysfunctional, but you can improve your hormonal health without gaining a ton of body fat. You know, you regain a little bit, but once your body senses that you're no longer in this hypocaloric state and you're well-fed daily, I think that really comes back. I think your hormonal health comes back. It's one thing I'm upset about. I didn't get my blood work done as frequently this past prep, but based on how I felt, I would say I was hormonally healthier in November at the very end of my prep than I was at the end of September at my first show. Hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is because it's funny going into the end of my first show, I pushed the diet really hard, had like really crazy diet face, like skull cheeks in. And then from that point on, I was able to kind of reverse diet out a little bit to an extent. Um, and I, even though I got leaner, my body fat percent kept going down. I felt a lot better and I was, I was better fed to a degree. And I had a feeling that if I were to test my, my hormones in late September compared to early November, I think I was hormonally healthier in early November. Uh, even though I was slightly leaner for sure. Um, but I wasn't in a hypocaloric state. I was kind of eating at maintenance a lot and I had a lot more frequent refeeds and stuff like that. So anyway, that's, that's a whole other side tangent, but like you said, you come from that track background, man. And there are shredded athletes that are hormonally healthy. So I don't think it's just about body fat percent. I think it has to do with your caloric intake and overall energy balance environment over the last X period of time. Because if you're hormonally healthy, even at 12% body fat, if we crash diet for one week, right? Our hormones are going to drop fast. Like we can see a a pretty significant reduction in testosterone really quickly 
even if we're still not lean. So maybe we went from 12% to 11%, but because we aggressively dieted and created a very large deficit, there was some sort of adaptation observed, um, you know, negative adaptation observed. So anyway, that's a whole other topic, but yeah. Yeah. Cool tangent, but something yeah. to think about food for thought. Anyways, for sure. this has been a fun discussion and just to wrap up, I just wanted to plug Chris's new online course. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we had our first live cohort back uh, in late January through early March, and uh, we will run another live cohort here soon. So definitely check it out. It's at schoolofgains.com. It's called 3D. It's the hypertrophy resistance exercise education. So um, it's a four-week course. Week one is on muscle physiology. Week two is on kinesiology. Week three is on dosage. So volume, intensity, and frequency, a lot of what we spoke about today. And then week four is all about practical programming for coaches, athletes. Um, and it's all based on, again, hypertrophy. So um, yeah, definitely be sure to check that out. Hopefully we have that second cohort of live students um, sooner than later, but I'm not sure on an exact date yet. Um, but yeah, stay tuned. You, you guys can follow me at um, on Instagram at Christopher.Barricat and you can check out our website, schoolofgains.com, gains with a Z. Sick. I will put those links in the description. So thanks cool. again for being on the show. You got it, my man. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.